0: Hi, this is Dr. Janet Sloss. As the number of cancer survivors rise, there is an increased need for natural and integrated practitioners to support the late and long-term side effects of patients' experience as a result of their treatment. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Rebuilding Patients After Cancer Treatment on August 10th, where I'll lead you through some common treatment strategies I use in my own clinical practice. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today.
1: This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath, and joining us on the line today is Dr. Wayne Todd. Wayne has a passionate enthusiasm for exploring the many methods of practice available within the chiropractic profession. In 2004, he completed a two-year functional neurology diplomate program, at the time making him one of only a handful of Australian chiropractors with this training. He lives in beautiful country Victoria, where he's surrounded by fresh air, beautiful singing birds, sunshine all the time, and he's a happy man. And I'm so happy to bring you onto this podcast, Wayne. Thanks for joining us.
0: oh thanks, Damien. Thanks for that uh, that intro. It, it's uh, sunny every day except when the clouds are out. So that's all good.
1: <laughs> the sun is always there. The sun is always up. I mean, it's always
0: well, there. It's, a, it's just that um, sometimes you can't see it, but most of the time, it's all good.
1: Wayne, um, you've done a mountain of work and one of the, the big pieces or the, the biggest piece of work that I think that you've done, which has been uh, revolutionary, certainly in my practice and in chiropractic practices around the world has been the SD protocol and SD meaning sympathetic dominance. How did you come to designing a program to help people with sympathetic dominance and what is sympathetic dominance?
0: Like well, sympathetic dominance, I guess, is uh, really the, um, the the crux of what we see when we see dysautonomia and imbalance in that um, autonomic nervous system, where someone's stuck in fight or flight mechanism, where their fight or flight mechanism is switched on and their rest, digest and repair uh, systems are shut down, being the parasympathetics. So, you can't have Um, both sides of that autonomic seesaw are working together at the same time. It's either one or the other, sympathetic or parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And increasingly today we're seeing more and more people who are stuck in that fight-and-flight mechanism where that sympathetic nervous system has just switched on to keep them safe and protected, which is good in short bursts. Uh, but when it stays locked on, it's really you know, compromising all those other good systems in our body, our digestive system, our reproductive system, our immune system, and our ability to get a good night's sleep and rest. All of those mm. things are inhibited when we're stuck in fight or flight. And um, it's really just about addressing how to identify in clinical practice that someone is stuck in that fight or flight mechanism and then what to what to do about it and how to try and turn that around, really, is, is what we put together with the SD protocol or the Sympathetic Dominance Protocol. Um, yeah. And I guess to, to answer that question initially, how did it come about? Um, working with the, doing the functional neurology work that I was doing really um, down rabbit holes, I guess, looking at really um, finite imbalances in the the nervous system functionally and trying to stimulate one side of the brain compared to the other and stimulate one side of the cerebellum compared to the other to create a better state of balance. What I started to see was that overarching sympathetic dominance was really um, playing a major role in that significant asymmetry that we saw in people. And when, when I started applying that overarching Um, calming response to try and calm that whole sympathetic nervous system down, we saw some significant improvement in that unilateral imbalance that I saw in the the functional nervous system. So um, a lot of that work that I was doing uh, went by the wayside and um, looking at that overarching health and wellbeing um, perspective. And we also had a, um, a functional medicine GP working in our practice for over 10 years. At the time, I was doing all the really specific functional neurology work and uh, there was quite a few dawnings that came with in- interactions and conversations with with him and the work he was doing with natural hormone balancing, uh, and the work that I was doing with the functional neurology, um, and and looking at Gee, all of this is connected, and and really trying to take a simplistic approach to it, and how every practitioner and every sphere really this applies to whether you're working on the the psychology uh, side of the triangle the the um, chemical side of that triangle, you know, working with people's digestive health and digestive system function, or whether you're working on the physical side of that health triangle, looking at physical dysfunction.
1: I love that. And I think um, one of the key things to go back to is that the nervous system controls everything within the body. And yes, we can spend a lot of time in the gut and we can spend a lot of time on hormones and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, without the brain and the nervous system, Nothing much is really going to work, right so if we go back and take a step back and we talk about the different parts of the nervous system we've got we 've got the somatic nervous system and we 've got the autonomic nervous system and when we talk about the autonomic nervous system we 're talking about the sympathetic component and the parasympathetic component. Um, I love that you talk about the fact that there 's a seesaw kind of mechanism there so you 've got either sympathetic activity or parasympathetic activity and th- th- surely there 's got to be a balance of both like there 's going to be sympathetic and parasympathetic working. You know, at the same time. But are you saying that you can't have one significantly dominant and the other one kind of catching? Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, you can't have them both really dominant at the same time. One will always take precedence. That right. that and it, when someone is in a, in a stressful state, um that sympathetic nervous system will will take precedence to keep that so that individual safe and protected. And when I say stressful state, stress really can only come from three different aspects, and that's either physical chemical or emotional stress and Mm -hmm. it's being able to identify which might be the primary uh, for that individual or sometimes there's there's more than one side of the triangle that's active creating that that stress whether it you know is a past history of being molested or witnessing a traumatic event that's keeping that individual constant in that stressed wound up state, whether it's the physical side of the triangle, someone who's working in a a constantly poor ergonomic position, looking at, you know, down at a laptop all day, driving their shoulders forward, their head forward, putting them into that fight and flight physical posturing, mm. that whole fight and flight physical posturing will then shut down the digestive system, shut down the reproductive system, shut down the immune system, so... It's looking at what what is the predominant stress, and if you know where did it start, the chicken or the egg situation, and is that whole sympathetic nervous system is constantly cranked up, um, then you've got. If you look at the digestive system, you've got reduced enteric uh, blood flow and also reduced enteric neurological activation when someone's in fight or flight status. So that long standing suppression of digestive system will cause poorly functioning uh, digestive system cells. So if you look particularly at the, that single cell layer lining of the digestive system tract, that uh, gut membrane, um, that when those cells are replacing themselves on an ongoing basis and if you've got poor nerves function and poor blood flow, then you're not going to get nice robust cells forming and then you end up with a leaky gut membrane which creates inflammatory process within that circulatory system and partially digested foods and toxins leaking into the bloodstream uh, causing an an immune response, an IgG response, which then causes the release of inflammatory cytokines and those inflammatory cytokines will race around the body and attack other tissues, joints and um, the nervous system, gut lining itself again, lungs, whatever tissue you want to describe that's um, susceptible to those inflammatory cytokines. Will be inflamed, and you think, "Well, where did that whole cycle start?"
1: Uh, We see a lot of different um, situations, conditions, diseases, symptoms um, in our practices. You know, regardless of the type of practitioner that you might be, we see all kinds of different things coming into our practice. And it's quite easy just to, um, you know, look. If you're a plumber, you think that everything's a leaking tap. If you're a if you're a builder or a carpenter, you think that everything's a nail, and you've got to have a hammer, right? So, as a chiropractor, it's quite easy to, you know, think that everything originates in the spine. Um, and if you're a naturopath or a herbalist, you know, you're going to think that the cure is always going to be vitamins or herbs. Um, in this sort of situation, I would have thought that it's quite important for us to kind of be able to effectively diagnose sympathetic dominance um, and certainly come to a point where we understand what's actually going on. So yes, they'll come with a group of symptoms, but how do we determine that sympathetic dominance actually exists in somebody?
0: Yeah, certainly that's that's an interesting um, conundrum, but I find it quite simple um, from a neurological perspective to, to address that. And one of the first things that I do clinically is just look at someone's posture. So if we look at a a lateral postural view of someone when they're standing and we dropped a plumb line down, it should pass through their ear, the point of their shoulder, their hip, their knee and their ankle for someone to be in a nice neutral alignment. And when someone's in a fight or flight posture, we will see their head drop forward of that center gravity line. So for every centimeter that the head moves forward of that um, center gravity line, the head doubles in weight. Um, from a gravitational perspective, which puts significant load on that whole upper trap shoulder region, which is why you see people who, you know, who are constantly stressed, have always have tight shoulders. They're those individuals who go and see a massage therapist every week, and they say, "Oh my God, your shoulders feel like cement, and just they need to be smashed to try and break up those constantly <laughs> tight jackhammer. muscles." Yeah, because as they're in that fight or flight posture, uh, which is, you know, gravity is trying to drop that head to the ground all the time. And those posterior muscle groups are working hard all the time to hold that head up against gravity. But what that's also doing is it's firing up the upper thoracic cord, which is where our second order neurons for sympathetic drive originate in the lateral horn of the upper thoracic, or the entire thoracic uh, spinal cord, the IML or the intermediate lateral cell column and the lateral horns is where our second order neurons for sympathetic activation reside. So if we're in that rounded shoulder forward head posture position, we will get a secondary ramp up of that sympathetic drive and sh- shut down the parasympathetic nervous system. So just purely looking at someone's posture will give you a dead set indicator that someone may be in sympathetic overdrive. Uh, and so I would ask when I see someone in that posture, Ask them a series of quite simple clinical questions, which the more of these that they would answer yes to, would give you an indication that they may well be in that fight or flight, um, fight or flight sympathetic dominance status.
1: Yeah, nice. So kind of you're starting with a questionnaire and more inquiry around symptoms and um, almost like a syndrome. So it's more like the sympathetic dominant syndrome is kind of where you're coming at it from.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to do you want me to read some of those symptoms that someone might have? Yeah, Perfect. yeah. Symp- do that. sympathetic dominance. Yeah. So, though, so I would say to the individual: Do you get shoulder and neck muscle tightness? Are you sensitive to light? Are you sensitive to sound? And those two things would need to be on high alert when you're in when you're in that fight and flight mechanism. You're sensitive to light. Sensitive to sound. Do you sleep lightly? Do you have vivid dreams? Do you get digestive upsets like bloating, constipation, diarrhea? Do you have elevated blood pressure? Do you feel tired regularly? Do you feel cold? Do you have difficulty losing weight? All associated with an underactive thyroid, which is associated with that whole sympathetic dominance as well. Do you crave sugar and salt? Hormonal imbalances, particularly estrogen dominance, gallbladder dysfunction, uterine fibroids, irritability, headaches, hair loss thyroid imbalance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, water retention, anxiety or depression, how many of those things would you tick? And often when you pick someone who's in a state of sympathetic dominance, by the time you've got through that list, they have tears streaming down their face.
1: <laughs> and they're more sympathetically charged. <laughs> yeah, how do you know all that about me?
0: Um, because those are you know classic symptoms that you would see when someone is in that fight-and-flight yeah. constant um, status. There are other clinical things that you would look at. For instance, pupil size is a really good indication of mm. acute or chronic sympathetic wind-up as well. So yeah. we would look at those clinical indicators and, and knowing uh, what nuclei drive that response. In the early stages of sympathetic uh, dominance, we would see quite dilated pupils. In mm. uh, a chronic sympathetically dominant individual, we would see pinprick pupils, and that is purely because the the Edinger-Westphal nucleus, which sits in the mesencephalon the brainstem area, which is the powerhouse of sympathetic drive, that kicks in and creates a pupil constriction, which will actually uh, protect that retina from long-term uh, damage if the sympathetics are constantly wound up. Forcing them to be dilated initially. So it's a protective mechanism for the retina that kicks in with long standing sympathetic wind up. Also, those pinprick pupils. So, those, you know, there's a few clinical tips that that I would look for um, and in the historical um, questions in a questionnaire will give you a a fairly good confirmation um, that someone is in that state of sympathetic dominance.
1: I love it. And so simple too. Like it's it's not that you've got to go and, I mean, obviously we've all done university degrees, but you don't have to go, you know, looking for anything um, obscure. And so you're not necessarily relying on pathology results or in-depth pathology expensive tests to kind of determine whether or not somebody is sick enough to actually go in this sort of direction to manage. That is correct. And there is a number of labs that you can do uh, to confirm,
0: uh, should you wish to, uh, some of the areas that 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 you know may well be out of balance, and obviously other further investigations. If someone's got polycystic ovarian syndrome, you might well then, you know, look at ultrasounds to confirm cysts on ovaries, etc. And um, but all of that again is related back to that sympathetic wind up. Um, you know, it, I, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you would like to, if I can indulge the audience a little bit, in, and I, I really love talking about uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. If we look at the, the um, accepted um, nomenclature, which would enable a diagnosis for someone with polycystic ovarian syndrome, the Rotterdam Convention, um, basically, you need to have three of the following four symptoms to be diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So multiple cysts on the ovaries, and that's typically confirmed with pelvic ultrasound, um, infertility, and ovulation. And the last one is increased testosterone. And that's either confirmed clinically with increased facial and body hair or with lab tests. So three of those four things to be diagnosed with with PCOS. But if we go back to a female gazelle that's out in the, the jungle that's being chased by a lion, do you think she's thinking about releasing an egg to fall pregnant at that time when she's in stress? No. <laughs> I <not>. no. No. <laughs> no. So the hypothalamus is the area of the brain that actually controls what the pituitary does. So the hypothalamus would inhibit the pituitary from releasing luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone to inhibit ovulation when an individual is under stress. So when ovulation is inhibited, each time an egg is not released from an ovary at that time of the cycle, the ovary forms a cyst. That's why cyst forms. Cyst forms purely because an egg has not been released. And walls of those cysts generate high amounts of estrogen and testosterone. Two hormones a female can do without excess amounts of. Elevated estrogen uh, stimulates thickening of the endometrial lining and increased um, period heaviness, mid cycle spotting, clotting, etc. But elevated estrogen also inhibits thyroid function because estrogen and thyroxin bind to exactly the same receptor sites on cells So, in within the body. So if you imagine the cells to have angled car parks around the outside, if you've got high estrogen, all those car parks are taken up with estrogen. Uh, so then thyroxin and circulation can't bind and attach the cells. So you get a relative clinical underactive thyroid so even though the lab tests are showing that the thyroxin levels are okay and TSH levels are within normal limits, what you classically see with someone who's in that situation over a period of years, their um, TSH levels are slowly climbing within that normal range until maybe after you know having a, a thyroid function test done every couple of years. After 10 years, they go, oh, now you've got an underactive thyroid. But when you actually look back over the, the historical lab tests, you're seeing that TSH slowly climbing through the normal range purely because they've had long-standing estrogen dominance inhibiting uh, thyroid function and then the, the the brain's going, come on, come on, and the pituitary, we need, we need more thyroxin, so TSH is um, slowly uh, climbing over a period of time. But there's the connection with thyroid function and stress response. But that gazelle, when she's being chased, she's not thinking about releasing an egg, but it has that. Significant flow-on effect and impact within within the body physically, because also high estrogen levels is another known inhibitor to digestive system function and gastric motility, and also increasing um, biliary stasis is associated with uh, estrogen dominance as well. So hence gallbladder connection. So it's common, <laughs> you know. If I walk into a room, I see a new patient who's got a thyroidectomy scar on the front of their neck. I say, Oh, you've had your gallbladder removed and you've had a hysterectomy. Have you? And I'll say, how do you know that? And I'll go, oh, from, the scar, <laughs> from the scar on your neck. And I'll go, no, that's where I had my thyroid removed, not my uterus and my gallbladder. And I'll go, yeah, I know that. I know that. But that would have been third in the triad. First, you would have had your gallbladder removed. Then you ended up with heavy cycles and fibroids and ended up with a hysterectomy, and then your thyroid was the third in the triad to fall over. So those things are common. And I guess the long-term in practice – you know knowing what i know now helping people through that those processes over 35 years i didn't know any of this stuff you know 15 20 20 odd years ago and and prior to that so observing seeing all these things unfolding with people not knowing that they were all connected and now it's uh, really quite refreshing oh, i've seen that before oh yeah my goodness that was that individual that individual now so when you see someone who's gone through that um you know why that happened, but more importantly, when you see someone younger, you know what you can do to help prevent those potential cycles from occurring. It's, it's really quite powerful stuff.
1: Yeah, totally, and I love that um, you could consider that you're looking for these sorts of signs and symptoms in somebody younger. Obviously, not everyone who's had a thyroidectomy has also had their gallbladder taken out and a hysterectomy, but that is no, definitely something no, that you not, might actually yeah. go, oh, I could look into that because people – you know, people who are presenting with these sorts of symptoms and um, diseases could also have these concomitant, you know, um, disease processes also going on. And that's, it's worth considering, of course. And so we are seeing a lot of people being diagnosed with thyroid disease these days. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm dubious and I'm doubtful as to whether or not it, the epidemic of thyroid disease is as big as what, you know, it it, it appears to be. And I wonder whether or not that's just, you know, maybe we're barking at shadows. Potentially, we could be looking at sympathetic dominance. Uh, But, you know, maybe we're looking for sympathetic dominance because, you know, we're chiropractors. But obviously, the, the SD protocol or sympathetic dominance can be managed through multiple channels. And of course, chiropractic is part of that. How else would another practitioner come into the sympathetic dominance space? So how does a naturopath come into the sympathetic dominance space? How does a psychologist or an exercise you know, phys come into this, this space?
0: An exercise physiologist, there is, you know, there's particular exercises that will be really important for someone who's in a state of sympathetic dominance. For instance, we would not want them to be working on their anterior muscle groups above T6, so the upper half of their body. We really want them to be focusing on stretching those muscles in the anterior half and toning the muscles in the posterior half and vice versa for the lower half of the body because we don't want to be driving that whole fight-and-flight posture. We want to be working on building up the extensors in the upper body and taking away from that whole fight-and-flight drive posture. So, An exercise physiologist would have a huge part to play on the the physical uh, toning And conditioning of muscles that would take someone into that status. From a naturopathic perspective, certainly, if we look at someone with long-standing sympathetic uh, drive that's inhibiting that digestive system function, we've really got to try and turn that digestive system function around. Get that leaky gut membrane healed. Take the appropriate uh, supplements and nutrients and bone broths and probiotics. Remove inflammatory foods from the diet. Help people with a, a diet plan to change and get rid of those inflammatory um, cytokines out of their diet.
1: Wayne, um, I know having done the SD protocol and and using it in my practice, uh, how important it is and how successful it is for my patients. And obviously, I've got a naturopath hat on as well as a chiropractic hat on, having done both of those courses in my life. But I also use uh, the skills of an integrative GP to assist me in accessing um, different, uh, functional, uh, tests and also to be across, you know, other disease processes that could be, uh, involved in what's actually going on. Um, and I really, I love the whole idea of, um, a collaborative approach to the management of these sorts of conditions. And so, um, where it gets too complicated for me, um, I will always refer out to a naturopath and uh, where you know where I need further support then i 'll refer through to the the integrated gps um, and for psychological support where it 's required that 's far more um, it's way outside my scope of practice. I'll refer to a psychologist or a counsellor. That's that's kind of where I go, and I think it's really nice for people to, you know, be mindful that we can't be all to everyone. I think it's you know it's important to understand what your skill set is and understand you know where your strengths actually are. With regards to chiropractic, I consider that to be one of my strengths, and clearly it's one of your strengths. How did you come up with, um, I suppose, the idea that we needed to research and look into the, the effect of an adjustment on this or and what area? How did you decide on that?
0: Yeah, look, I, I guess that knowing uh, where that sympathetic drive originates from, our sympathetic powerhouse, if you like, in the nervous system is in the brainstem and in the mesencephalon, particularly the top part of the brainstem, and the, the primary order neurons that reside in that mesencephalon, I, I call them embryological homologues. So they're they're brothers and sisters that all formed at the same time in utero, in that same location in the brainstem, for one sole purpose, and that is to keep us safe and keep us protected. So those embryological homologues, when, you, when one sibling gets fired up, the other gets fired up. So we have sight and sound you know, primary order receptor nuclei sitting there. We have red nucleus, which is a large muscle group firing to help enable us to run and fight. We have mesencephalic reticular formation, which is the the bunch of neurons that fire down to our adrenal medulla and have that adrenal response. So they're all there. So knowing that they're all housed in that one area, what do we do to help calm... Each one of those individuals down. It's like having that, you know, that family four-wheel drive where you've got the back of the car full of five kids, those five primary order neurons. When one gets fired up, they all get fired up. And if you can calm one down, the back of the car is a bit quieter. So we might calm down that superior colliculus for instance with some red lenses to help dampen that light input
1: can we stop on that for a second because i think this is a really important thing and i think um it's something that as practitioners we can intervene with immediately in our practice it's easy to recognize that someone's being overdriven their sympathetic nervous system's being hyperdrived because of all the screen time and just this you know penetrating you know blue light that's been thrown into our faces from the screens that we're on all the time, particularly even with children, how is this affecting our brain and our nervous system? What's the what's the blue light doing to our brain and nervous system, Wayne?
0: It, if we take ourselves really back to caveman days, I love the analogy, we, we really need to be out in the, the normal daylight during the day, and then when that sun goes down, we should not be having any blue light impacting our system, our neurological system. So when that sun goes down the caveman days we'll be sitting around the campfire, that red glow, and it calms the brain down, enables our um, pineal gland to start producing melatonin when that sun goes down. When when we've got blue light stimulating our retina, our melanopsin receptors in our retina in, are inhibiting the pineal gland from producing melatonin. But when the sun goes down, we're bombarded with blue light coming out of televisions telephones, computers, laptops, LED lights, halogen lights, blue light all around us. And then we wonder why people can't sleep because they haven't had that melatonin production occurring because we've had all this artificial blue light bombarding our nervous system. So if we wear some red lenses, for instance, red in the evening time will – it's like putting a red filter in front of us. It makes all light coming back into that brain stem – have a red wavelength, and red is the longest, slowest, calmest wavelength that we can have to calm that input down to our, our brain. So it's really blocking out that blue light in a much stronger way than blue light blockers. Blue light blocker blockers work very very effectively in blocking out blue light, but we still let the other 255 colours of that, 256 colours of the colour spectrum into our brainstem. We put a red filter on, it blocks the other wavelengths out and just allows that red long, slow, calm wavelength. So that's one of the things that we put we do with a SD protocol is get people to wear some red lenses in the evening when they're love in that. some lower-lit environments. It's a simple tool.
1: Yeah, simple I tool. love that. Wayne, just also on that, um, I, there's two things that come up for me when we talk about this. I know of some people that wear their red lenses all day and, and, and that freaks me out that people want red lenses all day. And the other thing that I find that people tend to do is – uh, put a Band-Aid on this whole situation. They'll screen time, screen time, screen time, screen time, and then take melatonin as the answer. Um, that to me sounds like you're bringing a Band-Aid to a chainsaw fight. So I'm just wondering if you can speak to those two little things, please.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, I don't encourage red lenses during the day. During the day, so if we take ourselves back to cavemen, back to basics, which is how we should you know, interact with most things in our in – our, our society and our, um, the things that impact our health back to basics. So we don't want to be blocking out that blue light during the day. It's necessary to be inhibiting um, melatonin um, production during the day because we want that hit at night when the sun goes down. So um, the the um, red lenses during the day, daylight discourage people from doing that and just get out and be, be active and be normal with regard to daylight during the day. And uh, what was the other thing, Damien, you wanted me to address there? I just lost my Oh, just, you
1: know, taking melatonin as the Band-Aid, oh, you know, I yeah, think, absolutely. you know, clearly. It is, yeah.
0: it, is it is. And it's certainly, you know, you're better to take on that caveman approach um, rather than, you know, someone who's constantly stressed all the time or they're in that, you know, stressful environment at work or at home, you know, taking heaps of magnesium and taking heaps of withania and wearing red lenses, all of those things will help But they're not addressing the underlying cause. You need to stop juggling that chainsaw um, or playing with the razor blade. They're all band-aids. They're all going to work and they're going to help change that pattern. But we also need to address the underlying primary drivers of that fight and flight response. Is it physical, yeah. chemical, or emotional?
1: So we'll talk about the people that sit, or the kids sitting in the back of the car. In in that regard, um, you know, just the management of that using the red light or the red lenses, which I love. It's such a simple little in, intervention. There's other parts as well that uh, that you focus on, and and part of that is to lie on your back on a foam roller, and that's a it's a principle and a practice that I've really embraced, and I love it. Both Amber and I have our foam rollers, where our SD protocol half foam rollers lying, and we lie on that and stretch out our chest muscles, and we love it. Like it's a really great way to kind of wind it at the end of the day. How does that work? Is that just by switching off those second order neurons? Is that what we're doing there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're putting your body into that neutral postural alignment and reducing that whole fight and flight wind up, and particularly reducing that upper back tension. It's a really excellent way of passively trying to realign the, um, that fight and flight posture back to a neutral posture. 15 minutes twice a day is optimal lying on a posture pole or a half foam roller. Mm. Um, but it's also really important throughout the day to have your ergonomic setup uh, as correct as it can be and being put into place mindfulness with regard to your postural pattern, bringing your chest up, shoulders back, tucking your chin in. Um, And then also if you're doing any gym work, you want to be minimizing pec decks, bench presses, push-ups, minimizing all of those things that are driving your body into that whole fight-and-flight posture. So the posture pole or the half foam roller is an excellent tool or strategy that can be put into place to reduce that whole physical sympathetic drive. And also I get people to do some um, uh, meditation while they're on the posture pole, Mm -hmm. kill two birds with one stone just to switch that busyness of the brain off as
1: well. I love that! What a great idea. Um, Multitasking—I'm not really good at that—but that sounds like two simple things that you could easily do. So, I love that. Now, from a nutritional perspective, too, Wayne, we um, there's important things to consider. Obviously, mentioned earlier on about an inflammatory diet—you know, winding that back, trying to find ways in which we can um, manage a leaky gut sort of profile that somebody might actually have. But there'd be also some nutritionals that we might be, you know, looking to use, and I. You know, in my practice, yes, we, we we look to use nutrition where appropriate. My preference is diet first, and then supplements later. When we get to the supplements piece, what are the sorts of supplements? Um, you know, magnesium is clearly one of those things, but what else might you consider?
0: Definitely magnesium, um, and certainly uh, withania is certainly very very um, beneficial for helping to calm and normalise the adrenals. It's an adrenal adapt- uh, adaptogen, so. Um, It it works extremely well. But magnesium, definitely, when we're under stress, we burn magnesium like it's going out of fashion and you can't store it either. So magnesium is certainly certainly vital. uh, For those women who have significant uh, hormonal imbalances associated with that uh, sympathetic drive and estrogen dominance, there are a number of other natural supplements that they can take to help reduce their relative estrogen levels. Um, is a younger individual, Chase Tree or Vitex Agnes castus is certainly uh, important in helping increase that luteal phase of the cycle. Um, for those women who are perimenopausal, seeing your um, functional medicine uh, doc and getting a script with some um, bioidentical um, progesterone cream, certainly um, that will help um, with a lot of the simp- um, symptomatic outflow that occurs at the different times in those hormonal uh, lifespan, I guess, and you know, taking what's appropriate for those individuals, given their age, to help create a fairly rapid symptomatic change, whilst also looking at that underlying Primary premise of reducing stress, physically, chemically, and emotionally.
1: Yeah, I love that. Now, Wayne, as a naturopath, um, you know, I practiced for a number of years as a naturopath, you know, over a decade actually, just as uh, solely as a naturopath, and then have gone on, went on to then practice as a chiropractor. I used to, I mean, I loved naturopathy, and I found myself often um, being challenged by. Um, compliance. I, I found myself, you know, concerned that I wanted people to get healthier than what they wanted to get, you know, and and so I would make these recommendations for people, and people would often find it difficult because it was sometimes it was slow to see change. In managing sympathetic dominance, because people's symptom picture is so profound, when uh, they make these changes, it appears that the cha- that, that the, the results, the symptom uh, reduction is quite significant and quite rapid. What's the process and what's the timeline for somebody, you know, kind of following this process? How long does it actually take for someone to notice that something's actually going on and changing?
0: Yeah, good question. I guess, you know, that's always an individual uh, outcome, but I would have to say for those that embrace and understand the whole concept, and, and I found that those individuals that have once have read my book that I've written um, and they understand it and they want to do the protocol rather than me telling them you need to take this supplement, do this exercise, do that, um, the compliance rate when you tell someone what to do is is relatively low compared to someone who's eagerly, trying to change things themselves once they understand that concept. So I've had um, situations where I've been looking after people for sometimes a month on a regular basis and I walk in the room and I put my hand out and say, hey, I don't think we've met before. And I've seen them several times over the preceding month.
1: <laughs> that's, that's and the first wine. time that happened,
0: <laughs> I, I thought I was definitely losing the plot and I was definitely <laughs> developing Alzheimer's. And, and I <laughs> said that to the individuals, and this has happened multiple times, I said, no, no, don't worry. My friends walk past me in the street. They don't recognize me anymore.
1: Wow. And I don't
0: recognize me in the mirror anymore because they look yeah. totally different. Their yeah. whole aura changes. They look well
1: isn't that exciting it's pretty cool stuff oh it's mm. so cool and I just know that as people are listening to this and the thousands of practitioners that listen to this particular podcast right now they're probably going oh I want that for my patients too and you know, and every time you listen to oh every time I listen to you, Wayne, speak, I think about, oh, there's Mrs. Such and Such, or there's Mr. Such and Such, or there's the kid of such and such. I'm thinking about the people that would benefit from this sort of intervention and and I love it. So, you know, having these sorts of chats, Wayne, I love it. I really welcome it. I'm so grateful that we've had the opportunity to talk again. Um, about this. When people want to learn more about the SD protocol um, you know, with you, I'll send them to sdprotocol.com. But in the past, pre-COVID, we used to do classes and lessons and seminars with you. How are you managing that these days?
0: Even better. Um, so we have uh, online modules for practitioners to do the online practitioner SD training.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so they could leave it at that doing the online training, which is equivalent of four days of individual um, workshopping.
1: Wow. And so would that be all CPD for, uh, for yes, practices? Yes, as well? CPD yeah.
0: for all of that as well. Yeah. Um, and there's a series of – there's about 85 videos throughout that training. There's quizzes, etc. So at the end of it, you should be fairly comfortable with the theory of sympathetic dominance. And then we have um, – a one-day virtual workshop so that can be done from your own home as well for any practitioner and that is really going through the nitty-gritty of how to implement it into practice how to answer those difficult questions and how to look at it from many different sides of the triangle no matter what style of practice you're running and what type of practitioner you are so we have that one-day virtual workshop to finish off the online theory training
1: Wayne I want to thank you again I know you're up in um Uh, in darwin in the in the northern territory and i'm very jealous of where you are right now given that uh, i'm in victoria and still in lockdown but you're doing great things around the world and i want to thank you for all the great work that you continue to do and the message that you're spreading um i know that the people that listen to this podcast will have got a lot from it and um thanks so much for joining us today oh
0: thank you damien you're more than welcome and and also thank you and appreciate the work that you're doing in helping change people's lives and uh, it's what we can take to our graves with us that we hopefully have helped at least one person um, see their aha
1: moment and turn them around. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Wayne. Catch you soon. Appreciate it, Damien. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr Damien Christoph, and thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or
0: treatment.